Welcome to the Rural Sales Show with my dad and host Sinjin Craner. Each week, my dad interviews people who you can learn from like sales and marketing experts, authors and performance coaches to help you and your rural sales team get to the next level. Oh, and make sure you subscribe or rate us on iTunes so you can buy me a motorbike. And now here's my dad. So I'm super excited to announce this week that we've managed to secure a guy by the name of James Kemp. If you don't know who James Kemp is, James Kemp is a very successful multi-million dollar entrepreneur. He's a coach, he's a mentor, he's a Kiwi New Zealander from birth, he's worked with Grab One, he's worked with uh, Simplicity, he's worked with the banks, the telcos, look him up. Um, The guy is a treasure trove of marketing and sales value bombs and he drops a ton of them here on this uh, episode when I talk to him and me and James talk for an hour and um, it's a longer episode than we normally would run for but I think the time will fly when you realize how much value he's packed into it and how much how many ideas and insights that are of massive value that he's packed into this so I encourage you of course if you're not driving to take notes uh, dial and really listen to what James is going to say because he would normally charge a ton of money uh, to provide some of the intel and the insights that he shares on, on the show here. So um, I brought James on as well because um, I think we both agreed that the rural sector and agribusiness firms sometimes are a little unsophisticated or immature in the way that they market or position or sell. Uh, and I think there's a lot we can learn from James and the sectors that he serves. So that's why I brought him on. Um, we talk about a whole bunch of things. We talk about marketing trends, uh, what's working, what's not. Uh, in his lifetime, what he sees makes a successful salesperson. And we go into a lot of depth on that. So I won't uh, hold up anymore. I want to introduce James. Here he is. Enjoy it and let me know what you think. So James, really great to have you here. Uh, it's been a long time trying to catch up with you and great to pin you down. And I know that you're going to provide our listeners hopefully with a uh, some really good insights here. So we'll, we'll do our best. How does that sound? I will endeavour to do so. Good to see you. Yeah, awesome. Awesome to have you. So, James, maybe uh, could you start by introducing yourself to the listeners and uh, telling us a little about, about you and your background so they can be familiar with who you are and where you've come from? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a Kiwi who hasn't lived in Kiwiland for uh, most of my life. So um, entrepreneur for 15 years, uh, various businesses that I um, started, failed at, uh, walked away from uh, and then pulled, you know, phoenixes out of the ashes. So, um, uh, my first my first forays into entrepreneurship were um, were 15 years ago, um, and when I started uh, generating leads online in the early days of the internet, so self taught like WordPress and SEO, um, and started generating leads for finance companies. Uh, and then, unfortunately, many of my customers went out of business. Um, in a little financial crisis that we had in the early 2000s. Uh, so I had to rapidly uh, go and look for jobs uh, and land on myself in the daily deals industry, firstly in the UK and the US, uh, and then came back to New Zealand and worked for, um, for GrabOne uh, in its heyday and ran kind of marketing and product there. So um, the, last, the last decade has been kind of me on my own and working predominantly online businesses. So I've sold... Know, courses and programs and services. Uh, we've got an agency where we build um, and partner with coaches where we, we build SaaS uh, and then do some consulting around business models on the side. Good. That gives you, it sounds like it keeps a bit busy. So let's say you come quite a giddy time from grab one days. I think you also help simplicity. So obviously for New Zealand listeners, I think you did a little bit with Sam Stubbs. Did I get the right or did I get that wrong? Yeah, I worked with Sam and I've worked with um, Tim in the, in the Juicy Days and worked with the banks and the telcos. So, uh, you know what New Zealand's like once it's a small place. And uh, I was kind of one of the first people who was um, really open to to sharing knowledge, if you know what I mean. You know, so in the Grab One Days, we, were very, we had an open culture um, and it was one of the fastest growing, you know, e-commerce businesses in the history of the country. And people wanted to know what we were doing. So, um, you know, I I stamped my mark on a lot of places by by openly sharing what was working in the online commerce game and how people translated that both offline and online. Awesome. Awesome. Great. All right. So we're in for some treats. So James, tell me, first question I've got for you is what do you think of the uh, 
the agency model. Where do you think the agency model is going? Because you and I, you know, we work client side, we work agency side. I often ask guests this question, where do you think the agency model is going? And you can answer that any way you want. What do you think of the future of the agency or an ad agency, design agency, digital agency? Where do you, where do you think their futures lie? What, where do you see it from your perspective and what you're seeing? I think, I think you're going to have different answers depending on the sectors. Um, you know, also always at the small business level, um, that it's been problematic because agencies have generally expanded into jack of all trades. We'll, we'll take up, we'll take the stuff off your hands that you don't understand. Um, and that's problematic for a few reasons. I think pr- primarily because most small businesses are paying agencies to essentially learn stuff about their customers that they already know. Um, and agencies tend to be, uh, focus on the amplification piece of, you know, advertising and display and getting the word out there rather than necessarily helping the business with the thing that moves the needle, which is around their core offer and proposition. So I think we'll see we'll see consolidation in the in the in the agency market that serves small businesses um, down to kind of hyper specialization. Um, and you know, we're seeing a couple of hybrid kind of models pop up. Um, I've worked with some clients who've essentially started an agency model where they've placed people internally, you know, so a hybrid between ad agency and recruitment agency, which works extremely well because you're putting, you know, you're putting the control back in the client's hands while giving them expertise that they don't have. Um, and also, you know, the the skin in the game model, you know, the the growth partner or those kind of pieces, which, you know, I, I operate in that sector as well, um, where, you know, you, you are taking some risk in the sense that you, you're, you're taking but you're also benefiting some upside. So rather than a retainer model per se, where the risk all falls on the customer, um, you know, there's a there's a partnership model which says, well, if we're going to sell stuff, let's uh, let's share in the upside. Uh, and that, that's obviously got variables based on you know what what margins are, what expectations are, and also you know what the strength of the relationship between the t- two businesses. I think at the top end, uh, agencies will always fulfil that function of. Um, brand, you know, that kind of uh, obscure concept that no one can ever really nail down and define and it's very individual, where the, the amplification of brand and the, the complexity of getting brand across multiple channels and, you know, having a control around those things is, um, is, is very expensive and very important and very difficult for business to do on their own. So I think you see a lot of innovation at the low end and a lot of um, rent seeking at the top end, like we always have, um, and you know, true innovation is pretty rare at the top end. I think you look at um, people like Wendy at Socialites, um, you know, where they've had a, a huge focus on the community elements, and I think that's that's deeply important because they're they're building long term equity and brand and, and assets with the brand. Um, so you'll see innovation there at the top end, but I think most most ad agencies at the top end, and, and unfortunately at, in the smaller business matter, are just rent seekers, where they're just seeking to essentially charge a business for expertise that they don't possess. And, you know, information is very inexpensive these days. So there is little excuse for businesses really to say we don't know how to do it when the how has been well publicised. Mm, okay. So, James, on that, I want to pick up on the amplification. And I, um, what about the attribution? Because you talked about, you know, the payment by results model, my words, not yours, or growth partners and sharing in that value, which is a fair exchange of commercial value that you both contribute to and then share. Um, interesting model because sometimes I think agencies try to do that, but it's so hard to prove the attribution. How do you go about that? How would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, attribution is just bullshit because it's it's attribution is um, attribution is based on the incentives of the person who who wants to attribute it. So Google and Facebook have done an extremely good job of of claiming credit for sales that they say are directly correlated with you taking an action on their platform which is spending money um which is nonsense <laughs> frankly that you know even to the point where we've defined things like last click attribution and those but they're they're all imperfect at worst and, and fraud you know and well imperfect at best and fraud at worst where people are just claiming last click attribution like the, the you know i've been doing what i'm doing for a decade you know, people come across me through obscure and strange means and, you know, second and third party word of mouth and, and, and these kind of ideas. Or someone told someone about someone or someone. And everybody experiences varying degrees of that. So the idea that 
something can be perfectly attributed to a click or an action because someone uh, you know clicked on this uh, piece of media at the la- at the last instance or did it on this platform um, is a fiction mainly perpetuated by those people. So I think partnerships are largely predicated on what a value exchange. You know, I, I, I bring if I'm consulting with someone, we look at the offer far before we look at any marketing around that offer. Because you know that the, we know that the offer, the pricing around it, the scarcity around it, uh, any bonuses, you know, any any um, any pieces of uh, of the promise of what someone's going to get from the offer, do far more heavy lifting than what channel they're going to choose. So, attribution is you should always be suspicious of someone claiming attribution. I generated this, which we generated that. Because largely the thing that does the heavy lifting in any business is the offer they wrap around their core product and, and, and serve them. Yeah, I love that. I love the focus on the offer and the irresistible offer. And it's something obviously that your um your 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 croc wearing friend um, Alex Walmosey talks about, obviously, in his book. So um so James, tell me then about skewing to the the marketing side. What are you seeing? I know it's such a particular question. What are you seeing in trends in marketing? We've we've just talked about attribution and which is closely related to accountability. But what are you seeing in marketing and media trends that you, where do you think things are moving? You know, do you think the days of like doing press ads and print ads and billboards and TV, like where's it all going for you? I don't think, I don't think any of that's dying. And, you know, the, the, I mean, emails died about 50 times since I've been sending emails, you know, print has died about 20 times since, you know, I consulted to some media companies. Um, I think we are, we are at the apex of the personal brand. You know, we're we're at the we're at the piece where a whole organization of of dozens or hundreds or thousands of people can largely grow or potentially die off the back of the personal the personal brand of one or two individuals around that organization. So I think I think we will see the more sophist I think we'll see more sophistication in people and how people approach their brands. I think we'll see more personal branding um, that drives actual overall e- the economics of a of a company or a business, and I and I also think we'll see innovation in the way that we put, we personally brand businesses. For example, um, I'm, I've worked with a business recently where the owner and the founder wasn't the face of the brand, um, where a, you know a knowledgeable brand spokesperson was essentially being built up. Um, as the face of that brand because they had deep domain expertise, they had credibility, um, and they had upside and, and, and shared skin in the game in terms of inside the business. So I think we'll see a lot more, you know, the, the world, humans have always been obsessed with celebrity. Humans have always been obsessed with the human condition and the curiosity, you know, have always lauded celebrities and, you know, fame and all these kind of things. And that's not going to change. It's very much human nature that we want to, um, you know, see if their shit stinks and they bleed like us. But largely, it's it's. I think that that curiosity of of, of what we have around humans can also drive commerce and, and can drive the economics of a whole business now, because the sheer reach that an individual can get across across social and media platforms is so large that the that the, the relative um, attention that that can drive can drive some very very large economic outcomes. Yeah, and it's interesting because you prompted me on that around it's never been so easy to get out there, but it's never been so hard to cut through, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the platform specialization, I think, will be increasingly crucial. The idea that you have to be on all platforms, I think, is one of the most dangerous myths, especially for small businesses. You know, um, oh, I need to be on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram, on on TikTok, on everything, you know, I, the way the way I generally pass these things because I hear that a lot with people coming to me saying, "Where, you know, a lot of the people I consult in are generally in the five to a hundred million dollar like revenue range, so they feel they feel that they've maybe tapped out one of their primary channels that they got. Let's say that's Facebook. Oh, we need to be on TikTok. And I'm like, are you on TikTok? Is your team on TikTok? Are you interested in fifteen second dancing videos? I, so so. Are you cons- your consumption habits kind of dictate your production habits? You know, I'm a long form guy. I can talk for hours. I do long, in depth stuff. You know, I write long form. I record long form. I do everything. Me fucking around on Twitter uh, and 
you know, these kind of things are just hobbies and games. Like TikTok is not my thing. And I'm perfectly okay with that. If you're, if you want to have overproduced, you know, 15 to 60 second videos and those kind of things, then you should be on TikTok. If you consume that, you can produce it. So I think, I think we'll see, you know, increasing specialization because the relative reach that you can drive out of a singular platform and, and mastering that platform, um, is, is, is so significant these days that focus is, you know, is always a superpower. Yeah. I really like that word around mastering, you know, and, and, and being masterful around specializing on platform on a particular and choosing one platform and going rather than going really wide, going super deep, going really, really bloody deep. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah. I, the people are like, you need to be everywhere again. It comes back to incentives, you know, cause they, they're, you must be on LinkedIn, says the LinkedIn expert. You must run search marketing, says the, you know, the SEO and Google expert. Of course they say that, you know. But I think people generally produce how they consume. You know, if you read lots of long form, then you produce lots of long form, you know. So I, I, I think people are understanding what the businesses are made up of humans and the nature of those humans is very difficult to change. Then you have an unfair advantage in, in, in platforms you participate in rather than being told you must be on all these places that you're not. Yeah, awesome. I'm going I'm to swap something to now that you've just prompted me again is why do you think it is, you know, with the, the social dilemma and all those kind of documentaries around Facebook and Google and Amazon and everything else, why do you think, you know, those companies, they veer on the sort of psychology, neurology of um, consumers, talk to me about the psychology understanding because it's something that both you and I probably share a lot of passion in. Is like the psychology of why buyers buy. Maybe talk to me about that. What are you seeing? What are you learning? Oh, everything every day. I mean, in in marketing, you know, and I've said this to you know giggles and gasps over the years. You know, when I run marketing teams, and when I've hired and I've hired and fired hundreds of people. I was always in marketing and, and I'm marketing and product and, you know, I'm sales over the, the make money piece. I've employed far, far more females than males because females are more empathetic. And empathy is a superpower, true empathy, not, you know, false empathy, true empathy of walking a mile in another human shoes and being able to use words and enter the conversation already happening in their head as a superpower, you know, and that, and that, if we invert away from, you know, towards marketing rather than let's start with marketing and then go to sales and then go to product and then go to operations, if we move away from the core driver of an economic result of a business, which is their offer, and then empathetically communicate the values around that offer, the person they are, the person they're going to be if they consume that or interact with the business, then marketing becomes very easy. Choosing the channels that you're on become very easy because you know how to powerfully communicate that in a way that's relevant to the the, the, the particular individual. And the, the digital world has created this, this, this kind of ones and zeros model of thinking about customers. Everybody talks about the market or the audience as some kind of like blob of things that they all think the same, act the same, believe the same things. And it's just nonsense. You know, there's individual humans on the other side of a, of consuming a message or consuming a piece of media that you have to earn attention from. So the humanization of, of those things is critically important to actually understand who's on the other side of it down to an individual level. So you can actually transmit both the values of the business, but also the value of them, of them giving their most precious resource nowadays, which is attention. Yeah, and we can get into attention because it is a very, very finite resource. I liked, James, how many marketing managers have you met that actually do their proper due diligence to do a deep dive on their actual specific market? Properly? Yeah, properly. I could count them on one hand. Yeah, same. I was going to say the same thing. There's a, I think there's a lot of people. I think there's some good marketing managers out there. But I think in the majority of cases, maybe it's Pareto principle, there's some that are very good and then there's some that are very mediocre. And they seem to think, and I'll be interested in your views on this, they seem to think that they are the customer. 
but they're you know and they project oh well i know what a farmer thinks and feels like because i spent summer on a farm in hawks bay so that makes me understand my customer do you see what what do marketing managers need to do better to be more effective and more valuable so they're seen as a profit center and not a cost center because often they get absolutely slagged by sales teams and the relationship between sales and marketing is so tenuous and, and there's a lot of friction and we talk about this all the time because as you know I, I train sales team in rural and the marketing team blame the sales team the sales team blame the sales team so how do marketing for those marketers or rural business owners that's listening to this how do their marketing and machine and how does their marketing managers get better how do they get more effective so they can actually defend the defendable market it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm largely in the coaching industry. You know, most of my clients are in the coaching industry, most of my partners are there. And the coaching industry is very interesting because it's developed sophistication very quickly. It's a re- it was a relatively infantile and, you know, many people in the industry still act infantile um, kind of industry that's matured very quickly. Um, but it also contains some of the best marketers in the world because it's selling something that people don't actually really want, <laughs> which is very, which is very interesting um, kind of frame. Um, and, and inside that market, the best coaches, like the best true coaches in terms of um, the ability to unpack something inside someone that is present but not necessarily identified, which is what coaching is, are also the best marketers. So marketing and coaching have these interesting parallels when it's not that um, it's not that and I've, and I've posted a lot about this recently. It's not that people are, are trying to shift beliefs. On people, the marketers believe that they are some kind of omnipotent being who can in, inject beliefs inside someone's head that they then act on. It's that marketers need to get better at tapping into the desire that people already have and communicating more accurately towards that. Because if you meet the best salespeople, they also have those same characteristics. So it's the, the best salespeople and the best marketers have the same characteristic is that they can tap in and communicate to desire that already exists inside a prospect's head um, and also already exists in time inside the prospect's language and belief system rather than necessarily injecting beliefs that they don't presently have. So marketers just generally just like the smell of their own farts because they believe that they can change the beliefs in people rather than actually just acknowledging that there's a portion of the market that already has the desire for the thing they sell um, and and talking to that desire rather than trying to shift beliefs around that that theirs there's is the best thing on the market because they say it's the best thing. Well, sometimes they talk in a bit of echo chamber. I see it on LinkedIn with all the ad agency guys. They're also backslapping each other. But it sounds so simple. But, like, I think a really good marketing manager really needs to truly understand the desires and motives and fears and hopes and dreams of their market. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, like... Let's try and get more practical on this, like for a rural rural audience. Like what, what's something you see that, you know, you see marketing all the time in terms of, for, you know, for the rural sales audience. Like what's something you see, what's the messaging that you see or an idea that you see in marketing that you know is ineffective? Um, I see a lot of them trying to educate their customers. And we know, obviously, because we just spoke about that with Eugene Swartz and all the amazing Robert Collins as well, they talk about education being really expensive. And actually, if you align to the motivation of your market, it's much easier. I mean, I see a lot of wastage, James, and it's a good question for you to turn back on me. I see a lot of wastage in marketing. I see a lot of rural budgets spent with little or no attribution or accountability on a return investment. I mean, that's why we push them more and more towards digital, right, versus the mass media. But we also see them not actually connecting, as you rightly say, with the conversation with those customers the specific conversations and questions those customers are having in their own head. So, like, mm. there's a little bit of lip service paid to knowing my market, but there's, like you, there's very few more um, market managers I meet in the rural sector that I serve and privileged to be in that actually do their due diligence on their market and then apply that to the specific platform or medium that those particular customers want to use so that's the mistakes i see i mean what mistakes do you see marketing managers make in your world that that the rural audience could learn from because let's face it rural rural is not very sophisticated at marketing and sometimes quite immature in their marketing compared to their it or fmcg uh, cousins so what do you reckon a rural marketing person or rural business owner who's in charge and seeing big marketing bills and big agency bills what are the some of the lessons 
they could learn from your world with marketing that is makes it more effective? What, what, what mistakes do you see that other sectors have corrected? Perhaps we're all being less sophisticated and a little bit more immature in their marketing sophistication. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the predominant unsophisticated marketing message is that um, of making or attributing values around the business that no one gives a shit about. Like, we're made in New Zealand. So what? The number of people who care about that is vanishingly small. Like, you know, if I wanted to really poke the bear, I could get into the eco, some of the our ideas around, you know, how eco-friendly your, 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 your product is and, and yeah, how much you should use and the marketing. Hmm. Not very much. <laughs> the, the, the number one hack that I have always used around selling a product or service is talking to the present pain, right? Because we all have an internal to-do list. We all have a list of things in our head or, you know, in an organizational whiteboard on a, you know, on a task list, which is shit that we don't want to do anymore <laughs> or shit that we thought that we hoped was, would improve tomorrow. And we don't really have a plan to do it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the if onlys or the what ifs and, and, and stuff that we just don't have a sense of how to, how to make go away. So, Injecting the pain reliever and of of a present pain is the fastest way to make a marketing message relevant to your ideal target market, and it has the also byproduct of um, condensing the sales cycle by the very nature of you talking about something that's present right now. We are much more likely to invest against something that we can presently see that we want to go away or we can presently see as an opportunity rather than something that will be a nice to have in the future. This is why insurance, this is why, you know, things that have to fight against apathy are ex exceedingly difficult to sell via direct response or via marketing and get a, get an accurate attribution from and spend. Most people generally resort to brand and those kind of things around that because they're fighting apathy, you know, and, and apathy is the, is the, the thing that we have to fight, you know, in, in, in the consumer's mind, because if they just don't give a shit about it, then they're not going to actually act on it in the first place. So injecting a present pain into your marketing and messaging, which says, you know, uh, my fertilizer will, will, you know, the, the, the crops, the crops are being how unsophisticated do I sound, but I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll run <laughs> you've chosen it. fertilizer, crops, which is about $1,400 a ton now. That's a great example. Oh, the crops are being harvested, you know, on, you know, at the end of September. If you want to make, if you want to, you know, get an eight percent higher yield right now, and you know, fight the inflation-busting uh, fertilizer, you know, you need to, you need to um, take our free sample or talk to our salesperson or you know, try, have our try before you buy kind of you know scenario, like something that's happening right now. Not like we're New Zealand's number one brand. No one cares. We're made in New Zealand. No one cares. We're green. We're eco. Uh, statistically, it's proven no one cares unless they're forced to. Exactly. And I think you've reminded listeners here as well, something we tried is like there's a difference between a problem and a pain. You know, like for me, if I if I roll my ankle playing squash or tennis or whatever I'm doing, that's a problem. But if yeah. I blow if I blow a calf, it's a pain. And this only just happened because I want I want the physio there on a Sunday, but for love nor money, I can't find a physio. I would have paid that physio five hundred dollars an hour to fix my calf that Sunday. Couldn't find one for yeah. local money. So it was a pain. So you're absolutely right for the listeners. And I think it's really important you listen to what James says here because he's got a he's got a lot of knowledge on this without blowing smoke up his own, own bum. But what he said there is you must inject your the present pain into your marketing message if you really want it to land. Would that be right, James? Yeah. Pain problem and solution are, you know, the 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 trifecta, right? And they, and they come in sequence. Pain is, is fundamentally someone's feeling something that they can't necessarily identify that's linked to a specific problem. You know, your your field is getting a lower yield than your neighbor's field. Why? Oh, it could be topography, could be fertilizer, could be, could be you soil. know, the, yeah, you can't retain staff to look out. You know, what what is the reason? Well, we'll tell you the reason. We'll diagnose your pain. So a diagnostic sale, you know, happens at that point. You're in pain, we'll help you diagnose the pain and identify the problem. Once someone's identified a problem, then the presentation of your solution is the natural next step. You know, and, and the solution is 
how quickly can I make this problem go away? Or at least um, how quickly will the actions I undertake today um, start to alleviate this problem towards some level of, you know, being at par? Yeah, I love that sequence. So you, basically your pain relates to your problem. And then when you've identified that pain that relates to that problem, then it helps you assist in the presentation of a specific and relevant solution. Yeah, the, and and the switch between each one is where sales happen because, you know, a diagnostic sale by its very nature exists in some kind of marketing continuum because the main sale actually isn't made yet, you know. So a diagnostic sale might be running a soil test and saying, is yeah. it the soil? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, a diagnostic might be, you know, looking at the vehicle that might be coming to end of life or is it worth repairing, trading in, um, you know, or buying a new one. So a diagnostic sale happens inside the marketing. You know, and, and the large, the, the, the number one reason that most businesses don't make enough sales is they don't make enough offers. You know, the, 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 the sequence between all, all of these stages of, um, of development of identification towards a solution of finally consuming something and offer needs to be made at every single sequence. You know, marketing makes the offer of, I'd like to trade some of your attention for, uh, for, you know, for some value. Um, marketing then makes a stage of, I, I'd, I'd like to diagnose your problem. I'd like to diagnose your pain so we can identify the problem. How are we going to do that? Because if you've moved someone along that continuum, then they're much closer to a sale. So making offers at all those sequences says that you are essentially, you know, you start with 100 and 20 people take up the diagnostic, you know, and 10 people then buy and then five people become long-term customers. You know, then you've got, actually got a, attribution with inside inside your marketing and sales sequence rather than saying i'm relying on attribution from a digital marketer because he ran facebook ads you're actually having attribution of each stage where you're losing them and why and the more granularly you can get attribution inside the system the more um more relevant and quicker the solutions that you deploy inside that um are relevant you know recently i i've been working with a lot of people who sell you know, high ticket products online, you know, and most of the, most of these people, most of these people are doing it um, by salespeople, you know, and with kind of founder led or personality led businesses, which many are in this sector, um, the salesperson will never convert as highly as the, as the guru, the main person that they're coming to get action from. So what I've been getting people to do is essentially having a, you know, a, a founder follow up. So any sales calls that don't close in that time period, I get the founder to invite those people to a Zoom call in a group. You know, it's highly efficient and making an exclusive offer from the founder, which just takes some tweaks and some components of, you know, the existing products. The delivery doesn't change, which is important. Um, and, you know, and re-offering to those people, both in a, it, it fulfills the idea of, you know, there's, there's expertise behind it because it's from the founder. So you get the credibility bump. There's an exclusive offer, which is um, time dependent. So they have to make a decision based on a reasonable amount of time, you know, there's no high pressure or they get a few days to decide. But once they decide that that's not for them, that offer goes away and there's some payment and some incentives around it. You know, and these businesses are large and they still see, you know, a 15% bump in immediate revenue. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars available to them from people who just didn't close. You know, essentially they're re-yielding on the assets they've already generated because days and weeks ago they invested in getting those people as a lead. You know, so... So reselling and reoffering doesn't even stop at the and during the marketing sequence. It also happened. It also the lowest hanging fruit is people who didn't buy for whatever reason, and not enough businesses are curious about why people didn't buy. They always attribute it over to overly simplistic um, reasons, which salespeople usually give them. Oh, mate, nah, mate, he didn't have the budget. Well, no, he just didn't see the value, right? You know, all of these all of these claims can be recalibrated. So offers exist to move someone along a continuum, which is largely to get them to give you money. And the more offers you have in your business and the more frequently those offers are made at every stage, funnily enough, the more sales you make. Yeah, it's beautiful, James. I love how we sort of, we darted between marketing and sales. If I can just turn the conversation to probably an area in a camp that I'm moving more to understanding that there is that sometimes uneasy relationship between sales and marketing. 
what makes a really good salesperson for you, James? You've hired and fired and you've managed and you're very successful at what you do. What are the traits and attributes of a really good salesperson? What would you list? What would be on your list? Again, the, the, see, the, the way that we think about sales and marketing doesn't have utility anymore. It's not useful, right? So I, I said before around you know the coaching element of of unpacking existing desires, and I think firstly, what a poor salesperson essentially is is trying to um, brutalize or overwhelm the person with facts, figures, stats, benefits, and all these pieces, and so does the so does a poor marketer. Whereas the best the best salesperson listens for cues. And listens for things that are things that are both said and unsaid in the communication with the prospect. Because the closer they can diagnose and communicate what that person's feeling and convey with belief that their solution is is the best, the more likely they are to make a sale. So the state the salesperson needs to have is as of, of high belief. You cannot sell something you don't believe in. Hundred percent. Um. The business can't, salespeople can't, it burns them out faster than any other characteristic. And that is a, you know, unfortunately, in the kind of frothy economic climate that we've had for the past, you know, uh, 15 years, there's lots of businesses that just sell stuff that sucks, right? And then they can't work out why no one's buying it. It's because it sucks in the first place. You know, it, it is not 10 times better than, their, than the incumbent thing they're actually competing with. So salespeople need to hold that belief, but they also need to hold that um, that that deep curiosity about what the person is actually saying, you know, and fundamentally go to the point where if the, the solution isn't right for them, of completely talking them out of it, right? Yeah, I 100% agree. There's one attribute I reckon that we've missed from that list, and I look for people that kick their own ass, self-motivation. I find it very hard to motivate an unmotivated person. What's your views on that? Uh, if you need motivation for something, then you you haven't summoned enough internal energy around belief, around your belief system to actually survive long enough to do that. I mean, people have become essentially addicted to the dopaminergic, um, you know, that's environment a, they're a, in where they need external. Words, I like that. <laughs> external motivation, that. and and people seek to. And this is across the board. It's not isolated to any particular category, but people people are being taught to extract as much energy from the environment they're in, you know. And and high performing people don't need a high performing environment to perform highly. They can perform under any kind of circumstances, and that's just an internal locus and in the uh, of you know that they control the things they can control and they ignore everything else. So, I think that has been. I think the pandemic and these scenarios where people have been said remote and also kind of cast off and culture and these things have started to, you know, the breaking people's assumptions been very difficult for people because much of the support and con- and controlled environment they are in has kind of been has kind of been evaporated. But on the flip side, it's also challenged people to actually find their internal, you know, that that kind of internal locus and that internal piece to actually say, well, what do I care about? And um yeah, if you need tub thumping and um, and firing up before you can actually perform in those environments, then maybe you should look at what environment you're in in the first place and you know who you're aligned with and what you're selling because it's it's very difficult to to be you know have bring powerful belief to your to your sales process and your work um, if you're not selling things that you want to sell with people that you want to be with. I think those are very wise words, very wise words indeed. So high belief system, motivation, self-motivation, intrinsic motivation. I think Serena Fines, a British explorer, said the one thing, the one single trait he looks for when he takes people on explorations is their level of intrinsic self-motivation. Because if he has to, obviously, on the mountain, motivate them, he puts the team at risk. Yeah, and I think just a, just a more general social commentary here is that I live in Asia you know, I employ a lot of people in Asia. Um, I've lived in Asia for a good part of my life. Um, and the West 
the West has started to decide that certain jobs and certain roles and certain things just aren't cool anymore, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And there's a there's a there's a there's a serious lack of professionals out there. People who are like, I'm a fucking salesperson, like, and putting the pro hat on and saying, I'm I'm here to sell good stuff to good people, right? And the thing I love about Asia is, I go to the cafe in the morning. And my, the person who works there has worked there for five years and she is a waitress in a cafe and she loves that job and she has social status around that job and that's her job. And she is a professional about that job. You go into the average cafe in London or Auckland and I've been in London and haven't been to Auckland for a little while, but you know, and it's someone who's just between jobs, you know, it's, I, I'm just here between, you know, becoming a doctor or becoming a TikTok influencer. And I don't really give a shit about you because I'm just here to collect a wage, you know, in between the other important stuff that I'm doing. And so if you're going to do something, just decide that you're going to be a fucking professional about it. And if you can't decide that, then don't do it. 100%. Because the, the thing that I see in, in many businesses is people are, I'm just here to make some money before I move on to the next big thing. And you're like, it doesn't work like that. Be a professional about the thing that you're doing, commit to it fully, and the results that you get that you get from that will help you shape the next thing that happens naturally. Oh, I agree. And when I was, you know, when I was a, when I was marketing director at Grapevine, marketing was cool and we had a lot of, um, you know, kind of admin and operations people come and say, I really want a marketing job and I want to work on social media and, you know, hyper-talented creators. And they were like, how do I get a job in marketing? I'm like, do a really good job with the copy you're writing for the deal that you're putting out today. Do a really good job, you know, by answering the 25 support tickets you've got today because you'll get understanding and knowledge from those customers that you talk to today that I don't have, and I'd love you to tell me about what they're saying and what they're doing. Just be a pro at what you're doing, because otherwise the, the other opportunities are just fantasies and they won't come. And the I know I'm ranting now, so, so just... No, I like it. Keep going. But the, 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 the antipathy that people have towards certain jobs, certain professions, it's pathetic. Just decide that you're going to be that, own it, be a pro. And if you don't, if you don't have the will to do that, then go and find something else to do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we say you've got to commit with your full ass, not your half ass. Yeah. You know, you've got to give it, as you say, what you put in, you get out. And sales has got such a, as you know, James, has got such a bad connotation and a bad rap. You know, no one turns up to a barbecue or a rugby guy and goes, I'm a salesperson. I mean, we talk about transition of stop being a rural sales rep and start being a rural sales professional, which who are empathetic, who have a genuine, sincere intent to understand the pain of the customer by curiosity and asking really bloody quick questions that determine really good answers, which then uncover a buyer motive. So the conversation does all the heavy lifting in the sale. So 100% believe in you is around what you're saying there is that, you know, be the professional. And I see it as well in a Western culture. And you've got that, you've got that, um, you've got that perspective having been overseas for a long time is, and I've been to UK uh, recently. I've been to Aussie, I've been in New Zealand and that like not care factor is quite prevalent. And, you know, also I think the last question, a couple of questions I've got for you before we wrap up, because I've enjoyed all of this is. I okay, can I give you a quick counter example? Please. One of my, one of my very good friends um, works for, a company starting with sales and ending with force and is one of their top global salespeople. And he earns a lot of money. He Good earns, salespeople do he earns Good salespeople seven figures. Do. He earns, you know, what salespeople drink. He's been a salesperson his whole life. If he turns up at a barbecue and you ask him what he does, and he goes, he says, I sell software. Without an ounce of shame, without an ounce of like, I'm just between jobs, you know, and, Till I become president and blah blah blah, it's like yeah, I sell software. He owns it. Really, owns really it. expensive, large software, very complex. But I sell software, you know, and I have twenty people helping me do that, or technical, technical, and that. But I'm I'm the man. I sell shit, right? Yeah. And every single I met a guy who sold planes, right? And he was fifty eight years old, 
and he was a salesperson and he made millions of dollars a year and he owned it. And this idea that you can be like, you can hire, I'm just, you know, sales has had that thing where people were just doing it between the next thing, right? Accidental like salespeople. Accidental salespeople. Just commit. James. That's right. They, they, they fall into a default of sales. Like 46% of the people that are in sales, the research says they weren't ever meant to be in sales. They default. It was accidental for them. Last few questions. You've seen I, I, Most of us are completely accidental on things they do. It's just the, <laughs> the paths of life, right? Exactly. I mean, I love sales because it's an ability, if you're really good at it, you can make a lot of money. As you, as you rightly point out in your two examples, I mean, really good salespeople, really good sales professionals who are fully committed, proud and own it, are as rare as rocking horse shit. They're a very, very rare breed and species. And that's why they have such a fractal, disproportionate contribution to their business. And they often held their companies to ransom because they're so bloody valuable. So you can't let them go. But now I want to just move to the last couple of questions. You are in a privileged position. You work with a lot of different people, very successful business of your own. Lots of different things enjoyed the chat here is the the economy. And we talked about internal locus of control. And I really love the fact you talked about to listeners around controlling the controllable. You control what you can control and don't worry about the things you can't, if I've got you right or wrong. With the economy and where it's going, James, um, I feel that loss aversion or, and scarcity bias and FOMO has meant that a lot of people have been able to sell shit that they wouldn't have usually been able to sell because it's been frothy and it's been a hot market. I often, th- I often think as well that it's very easy to sell in, an, in a hot market that is obviously in a cold market, and it's very hard to run a business in a, in a tougher economic climate. What do you think you're going to see? I'm not asking you to be an economist because we know that sometimes they can get it very right. They can also get it very wrong. What do you predict and what is your advice for a rural business, but you don't need to be specific to rural, but generally – around what you think they should double down on and do with the economic headwinds and the challenges that I think a lot of businesses are going to face with as we come into this hyperinflation, this tougher, constrained environment? All of those things are, are constructs. You know, there's, there's billions of dollars that are created every day and there's trillions that are floating around, right? So what happens in these environments and showing my age a bit, but I've, I've seen a few of them, right? Is that the, the, the business who's most certain wins. And what I mean by that is what, what happens, and especially in this hyper-information environment, is that the universe loves balance. So the more chaos that's projected out there by the media, by the friends, by you know, many of the sentiments that you just expressed, they're like, mm. they, they are the common things, right? People talk about them so they come true. So the more uncertainty that's pushed out via the government, the media, where people get information, what people are seeking is certainty. They're seeking comfort. They're seeking certainty that that the, the natural things that they need to do anyway because shit still needs to happen, you know, we still need to operate. We're still buying stuff. We still need to do things, make decisions, commit stuff. You know, we don't, we don't live, we don't just roll up shop and say, I'm living in the attic for two years. They, the, the most certain businesses win, right? So, so what that means in practice is that the businesses that, that essentially hold people the closest and deliver the highest levels of certainty around their interaction with those products end up being the ones at the top of the marketplace. And in every single marketplace I've ever participated in, in terms of the, the, the top two or three people are making all the money, all the profit, right? So what happens is that if the, the other guys freak out in your industry, <clears throat> you've got a massive opportunity to inject the certainty. And you need to inject certainty even if you don't actually have it yourself. <laughs> So you need to be the lowest risk investment in the market by making the strongest promises and then backing those up. Our product will do this for you now and we guarantee it. And if it doesn't happen, this is what we're going to do about it. You know, if you invest now and you don't get what we're saying you get over the expected timeframe, the yield, the return, the usage, the hour, whatever your metrics are, then we are here to fix it. 
and we will do these things to to make it good. So the businesses with the most certainty and inject the most certainty into a market, the more chaotic the market, the more certainty you get. It's it's yin and yang. It's it's the it's the opposing forces as they operate. <coughs> the ones that that do that will be the ones that that rise to the top of the marketplace because money's still flying around, lots and lots of it. It's just that at the top, the ones who are the incumbents, you know, that the, the most certain ones are the are the are the, are the best bets because the ones down the bottom, the, the riskier ones, who are like, oh, we'll try it out and see what happens, are not where the money flows to. Yeah, I love it, James. I love it. I've enjoyed this conversation. Is there's a ton of stuff for people. I, I recommend people listen to this again because I've been scribbling away as James talks to me because he's got a big brain on him. He's been exposed to a lot of different businesses. James, I've, I've really enjoyed the chat. I think just to sort of wrap up and summarize for, for the listeners is you've talked around injecting the present pain in your marketing messages to make them effective. You've talked about the importance before you even look at attribution or accountability and performance and growth partners is to really, because you're a real king a real godfather on the offer, like really focus hard on your offer by truly understanding your market. And then the other thing that you talked about is that um, is around apathy being the biggest killer to sort of marketing efficacy, right? Because indifference is the biggest killer of sales and making deals right, like not moving people from a point A to point B because what you're trying to move them with doesn't actually motivate them because it doesn't align to their desire or their motivation. And then the other thing you said around with the traits of salespeople as a summary for this, because there's a lot in this in this particular um, episode here, which I've loved, is having high performers don't need to be in a high performance culture. And they actually, they are already high performers themselves. They do not need to be molded by their environment. They're already creating their environment, which is their brain, because that's obviously the biggest environment we live in, right? And then the motivation and the deep curiosity and the empathy which obviously applies to both sales and marketing people as well. So, James, you've been super generous here. You've given us a heap to think about, and I I just want to say I really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Awesome, James. Me too. I've had a lot of fun. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, mate.